The sermon text for today is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so, after he had patient, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for your word, and we do praise you that you are the God of light, you are the God of truth. Lord, we do pray that you would enlighten us this day, that you would open our eyes and cause us to see wonderful things from your word. Lord, we do ask you would help us to consider the state of our souls before you. Lord, we do pray that you would work in, in those among us who do not know you, and that you would draw them to yourself. Oh God, we do pray that you would use this day to, to build up your church, both here and in other places around the world. And Lord, we do pray that you would be with Mr. Horn and that you would help him to deliver your word to us and to explain to us the things that we need to hear. Amen. So we've now reached a point in the book of Hebrews where, where the writer's kind of changing subjects. When you look at the first two chapters, the first two chapters are why Christ is is greater, why he's greater than angels, why that he his signs were greater than any signs that have been done before. How he receives a kingdom because he was resurrected from the dead, and so he'll be a greater king than ever before. He's greater in being able to rescue those who are tempted because he was tempted and he overcame the temptation. How he was better than Moses because he's not a servant in the house, but he's the builder of the house. But then back in Hebrews 3.6, he starts focusing on warnings. Like in Hebrews 3.7 and 8, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. He goes on and keeps talking about making sure not to harden your heart, that they couldn't enter in because of their unbelief, and that you should make sure that you truly have entered his rest. Like in Hebrews 4.10, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So if you think that somehow you can earn heaven through your works, the writer's warning you, saying that is not how you receive heaven. Heaven is never received by works. And he goes on and says, expose yourself to the word of God because that's how you'll see where you're real, where your heart really is because it's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It will show you whether your heart is really towards God or not. And then he begins to talk about deeper things like Christ being an order, a priest on the order of Melchizedek. But then he goes, no, 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 I can't talk about that yet. I can't talk about that yet because you're dull of hearing. 
You don't want to hear the words of Scripture. You don't want to hear what God says. And he says, and, and you've started to need milk. You used to want meat, and now you need milk. You're, you're falling away. And he's warning them, make sure that you know that you know who God is. Make sure that you have real faith. Not just an artificial, a superficial faith, but a real faith that causes you to live in a very different way. He says, you should have been teachers, but you're still like babies. And after warning them why people don't want to move on from foundational doctrines, because they don't trust that the Word of God will make things manifest, that the Word of God will, will expose their sins, so instead they just keep saying the basic things instead of going on to deeper things. So all that to say, he spent the last four chapters giving warnings. And he's saying, look, there's things that are in this church that I'm preaching to, that I'm writing to, that disturb me, that make me concerned about your faith. We don't even know the details of who this church, who this was written to. But clearly, the writer of Hebrews is going, I see problems. And then we come to these verses, and in these verses, he makes a shift. And instead of just warning them, he makes a shift and starts to exhort them and starts to say, but I do think, see things that show evidence of salvation in you. I do see the working out. I do see that there are things that you're doing right. He's not accusing all of them of not being saved. And certainly in everything that he said to this point, he certainly indicated that he thinks some of them aren't saved. But he exhorts the readers and he starts and shifts. And, and really through chapter 12, at least through the beginning of chapter 12, he's going to be talking about how Christ is greater. If you think that, that David could do these things, Christ is greater. You should have greater expectations of yourself in the new covenant than you have of David. When you read the story of David's mighty man, you should be saying, how much mightier should we be? The Spirit has been poured out on the world. How much mightier should we be than David's mighty man? All these people of faith in the Old Testament in Hebrews 11, if they could do that with what they were given, how much more should we be able to do? So he shifts from, from warning them to exhorting them to say, understand where we are in redemptive history, understand the advantages that we have, understand how much greater that, that we know and the knowledge that we have and the understanding that we have and the spirit that we have, how much more should we expect of ourselves than we, when we read the Bible and we hear of the, the faithful saints of old? How much more should we expect of ourselves than we hear from them? His exhortation points to Melchizedek, how he was greater than Abraham, how Abraham gave, gave offerings to him, and how we're a priest on the order of Melchizedek because Christ is a priest on the order of Melchizedek. So his children are, are children of, the, of priests, or they're priests. His children are priests like Melchizedek and not like Aaron. And so how much more? How much greater are the expectations of his children, the children of Christ, than those of Aaron? 
So the writer of Hebrews, starting here, begins to say, yes, there are visible problems in the church. That doesn't mean that there are not those who will do great things for the kingdom of God. We don't just need warnings to not fall short. We also need exhortations to do better. To do more for righteousness' sake. To do more as a servant of God. To do more as those who are called by the name of Jesus Christ to show more love, to show more obedience, to show and to have a greater expectation of the efficacy of the gospel, of the power of Christ. We're not supposed to be a people that honor him with our lips, but honoring him in in our heart. We're not supposed to be a people who give lip service to the power of the gospel, but we're supposed to believe in it, not to be ashamed of it. There's no creature that's greater than the creator, Christ. And those who truly know him have overcome the world. And we're supposed to trust in those promises. And that should give us a boldness as we live out our life, a boldness to say we are more than victors in Jesus Christ. Do we live like we trust those promises? Verses 9 and 10. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name. And that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So now he uses the word but. We talked about (coughs) a couple weeks ago. How it was. (coughs) Excuse me. You know, but if they fall away, or if they fall away, this word that is really trying to draw a contrast. So he's been saying all these things, and now he's going to draw a contrast between what went before. And to some extent, it's what went back to chapter 3, but it's pretty much summed up in the previous verse, Hebrews 6, 8. But if it bears thorns, this is being the field, if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. And so he's going to say, but that's not what I think you are. I don't think you're just a bad field that's going to produce thorns and briars. That if if instead of just going to the foundational doctrines, if you start to teach the deeper things, if you start to declare what God has said about other things, I don't expect it to produce thorns and briars. I suspect it to produce herbs that are useful to the one who cultivated them. So the writer saying... This is what I expect from your church, so be bold. Be bold with the word. And don't expect to see thorns and briars, but expect to see useful fruit. And he says, beloved. In many of the epistles, the word beloved gets used a lot. Paul especially uses it frequently. But this is the only place in Hebrews where it's used. The author had been rebuking them. He'd been warning them. He'd been saying, you're making serious mistakes that should cause you to question your salvation. But it's not because he doesn't have a care for them that he's been saying these things. It's because he cares for them. And he thinks that, that they, he has seen their works. He has seen the, the work of the church. He has seen it. And he goes, this is a real, I think this is a real church. And he's saying these things. The rebukes are because of his love as much as the exhortations are because of his love. The rebukes are not because he is upset with them. The rebukes are because he cares and that he has hope for them. So he says we are confident. It's likely 
that Hebrews was written by a companion of Paul. Because it sounds very Pauline in its structure, but at the same time, it's probably not written by Paul because Paul has certain, certain marks of his writing that aren't present. But it's probably based on things that Paul is saying. And so even when he says we are confident, we don't know who the author is. But it was almost certainly people that were, that were those who ministered with Paul, those who were his disciples. And so the writer uses a plural here. And so he's not just stating that it's his opinion. But probably the group of the people that ministered with Paul, he's saying all of us are confident. All of us are persuaded that you really have true works, that you are a real church, you really have the fruit of the gospel. And that word confidence is probably better translated persuaded. They're seeing what the church is doing, and they're all in agreement. It's a real church. The Holy Spirit is really working there. It's really moving there. They're doing the works that accompany salvation. So he's confident of better things concerning you. Not that if you pour out water on that church that it will produce thorns and briars, but that it will produce good fruit. He's exhorting them to move on because they should desire good fruit. They shouldn't just desire to go, well, we want to make sure we don't lose anybody, so we just keep going back to the basic gospel. No, pour out the word of God. Pour out the commandments of God. Say these things. And they're confident it will produce good fruit in the church and not just thorns and briars. The, writers and his, the writer and his companions are expecting it to produce herbs that are useful for the one who cultivated it. Things that are useful for God and for his kingdom. <coughs> and he says, yes, things that accompany salvation. Specifically, he's expecting it to produce the things that accompany salvation. If you're saved and you hear the word of God, there are things that happen. Much of the visible church in America, much of the visible church throughout the world, thinks there's nothing that accompanies salvation. You're saved, you wander through this life, you can do whatever you want, and then at the end you return, receive eternal life. And this is saying, that is not true. There are things that accompany salvation that if you don't have the things that accompany salvation, you don't have salvation. Not because somehow these are works that earn the salvation. It's that if God saves us, if he gives us the gift of faith, there is real response to that gift of faith. And the writer of Hebrews has already named some, like sanctification. In Hebrews 2.11, it says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He says those who are his brethren, those who have been saved, those who, those who have been justified, that they are being saved, they are being sanctified. If you go, I'm saved, and you repent of certain sins, then you continue to wallow in the same other sins that you have for the rest of your life. Don't think you're saved. Because the one who was sanctified, the one who sanctifies, the one who saves, he is also the one who continues to sanctify. If he worked in you to save you, he will continue to work in you to cleanse you from your sin. He will continue to work in you to cause you to turn from other sins. As you walk through your life, as you get more mature, 
you'll see more and more of your sin. And God will give you more and more freedom from that sin because he will sanctify you. God raises his children. He doesn't just give birth to them and then leave them to wallow in, their, in, their, in the blood. He cleanses them and then continues to train them and continues to, to change them. This accompanies faith. If you have the faith so that you've been born as a child of God, he will sanctify you. He said the father sanctifies every one of his children. He trains every one of them without fail. Another thing, he delivers from the bondage of fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fear of the death, put, fear of death puts you in bondage. It is the power of death. It is the power of Satan. And those who are saved are freed from that fear because they trust in Jesus for eternal life. They have an understanding that their hope is not in this world, that their hope is in eternal life. And so they don't need to fear death because what's the worst thing that can happen if you die? You go to be with the Lord. And so fear of, lack of fear of death is something that accompanies salvation. Another thing that he has already said that accompanies salvation is rest from salvation by your works. Rest accompanies true salvation. You recognize, to, to be truly saved, you recognize that your works will never pay for your sins against a perfect God. They will never make you right with God. Which doesn't mean that you don't do anything. That writer continues after saying, make, your, make sure that you're at rest. He says, let us, be, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience recognizing that God who saves so that we can have rest, it means that we now get busy. And we now get busy to be diligent, to obey. Which is one of the other things that accompany salvation. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you don't obey Christ, you don't know Christ. You don't earn your salvation by obeying him. But those who Christ gives a new heart, those who Christ writes the law in their heart and writes the law in their mind, the result, the thing that accompanies salvation, the thing that accompanies faith is obedience. Salvation is only for those who obey Christ. Not because, again, that somehow we get, that we score points by doing what we're supposed to do. That's not how it works. But when God gives us a heart to not be in rebellion against God, we start to do what we're supposed to do. We obey Him. Works, you know, you know, it's not just the writer of Hebrews that says this. 1 John 3, 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he has been born of God. 
This isn't us going, we obey Him by our strength. This is us going, if He has given you the Holy Spirit, if He has given you His seed, then He will constrain your sin. It has nothing to do with your choice. He will do it. Eternal salvation is only for those who obey Christ. And obedience means that works always accompany salvation. As James says in 2, 17 and 18, Thus also faith by itself, does, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, so show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is what faith does. We're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. There are always things that accompany faith. Obedience doing the works that that are the works of righteousness, these are always the things that accompany salvation. Because Christ saved us to good works. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saves us. He gives us a heart of flesh. He writes the law in our mind. He writes the law in our heart. So all the, he gives us his Holy Spirit so his seed remains in us and so that we obey God and we do the works that he would have us to do for that's what he saved us for. Yes, we receive eternal life, but he saved us so that we would walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. He saved us to be his bride. He saved us for himself. And that means our salvation is about Him. It's not about us. It's about Him, which means that our salvation will be accompanied by good works because the point of saving us was to do good works for His name and for His glory and for His honor. God doesn't just save us from the condemnation of sin. He is saving us from sin, which means He's saving us to obedience. Because the opposite of sin is obedience. He always saves to obedience. He doesn't just save us and say, I'm just going to ignore your sin. No, he saves us from our sin. He cleanses us and he changes us and he causes us to walk in obedience. He doesn't just save us from the consequences of sin. He saves us from sin. Then the writer says, though we speak in this manner, he's been warning them over and over and over again. And he says, But we have better expectations of you. Even though I've been saying those things, understand, they apply. You should think about them. But I think if you pour out the word of God in your church, it will change and your people will glorify God. They will produce useful fruit. So even though there's things that are wrong in the church, so that they had to be warned, the church needed to be warned because because they just wanted to look at the hopeful signs that mixed in with the hopeful signs were disturbing signs, like specifically a lack of desire to know God and His Word better, a lack of desire to see the richness of God's Word in all its simplicity and its complexity, because both of them are right there. To make sure they didn't harden their hearts, because they also had hopeful signs And their signs were hopeful signs because God is not unjust. 
the idea that God is not unjust is a really important concept because so many churches ignore this concept. So many churches just, they don't treat this as, if you say that salvation is not accompanied by good works, you're saying God is unjust. If you believe that nothing accompanies salvation, that there is no sanctification, there is no turning away from your sin, there is no causing you to walk in the path of righteousness, there is no, there is no good works that you do, then God is unjust just to let you go and continue to sin more. That would be unjust. And God is not unjust. You know, Romans 2, 5 through 9 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. The writer doesn't go, unless you have faith. He goes, everyone gets judged the same. But if you have faith, it produces works that are about God. If you don't have faith, all your works are about you. So God can sit there and he can justly judge. Did you glorify me or did you glorify yourself? If you glorify yourself, you go to hell. If you glorify God, he is just to bring you to heaven. So anybody who says that the deeds don't need to accompany salvation, that work doesn't need to accompany salvation, they're saying God is unjust and he will look at two people behaving the same way and forgive one and hold the other accountable. And that is not what God says that he does. It's not what God says that he does. He will render to each one according to his deeds. Are your deeds about about seeking eternal life? Are your deeds about doing good? Are your deeds about the honor of God? Are your deeds about immortality? Is, are your deeds about earthly things? Or are your deeds about heavenly things? If your deeds are just about earthly things, God will judge you according to your deeds. The Jews were saying, which is what so many American Christians say today, the Jews were saying, we have Abraham as our father. I've prayed a prayer. I've walked an aisle. I've been baptized is what's said in American churches all the time. And Paul's writing to them in Romans and saying, look, if this is where your hope of salvation is, you're not saved. Salvation is you have a new heart. You have a new desire. You have a desire to do different things. You're a new creature. You have different deeds so that God can judge you according to those deeds. Not that he's judging according to the standard of the law. If he judged according to the standard of the law, all of us would be condemned. Only Christ can stand by the law. But the rest of us stand by faith. But standing by faith means that there's real effect of that faith. There's real things that accompany it. 
So he can look at the things that accompany salvation and he can look at them and say, this proves that you have faith. And this is how we can know we have faith. We look at the things that accompany salvation and we go, this is my working out my salvation. This is the good works that God prepared beforehand for me to work in. This is how we can have assurance of faith. There's lots of people who want to point to their baptism or their profession of faith or all these other things about why they know they have faith. And God says, the way you know you have faith is that you go do the things that God told you to do. That's how you know you have faith. You go do the things that God told you to do. Because God is just. And if he's your chi- if you're his child, he will scourge you. He will give you his seed. He will cause you to walk in those good works. So nobody can look at their good works and say, look at what I did. But they'll all have the good works because that's what God does in his children. That's what God does in his children. So God is just in his judgment. So God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. God won't forget what they did. The writer of Hebrews seemed to have some experience of their work toward him and is confident that they'll receive a reward, reward for it. You remember Mark nine forty one, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so the writer's going... I've seen your work. I've seen your labor of love. I've seen it. God will be just. He will reward it. And when we read, at least when I read, work and labor of love, it sounds repetitive. What's the difference between work and labor? Well, the two things mean different things in the Greek. The word translated work means work. It means that that you accomplish things, that you do things, that you actually, you have an impact on the world around you. But the word translated labor, it's more about there being a cost to it than about what they accomplished. So the first one is about what they accomplished, and the second one is about that that they had a toil, that they had a cost to get there. The word really comes from cut. It means that their work caused them real pain. It wasn't that they just did things that they liked to do. It was that they did things that they didn't like to do. The labor of love, that they cared enough for the saints, that they cared enough for the people of God, that they did things that caused them pain. That's important to recognize. If all we're doing is the things that we want to do, the things that please us to do, then we shouldn't think that this is that that there's some obligation. It's like it's like the Pharisees who would give money, so they would blow a trumpet on the street, allegedly to attract people to them, but so that they the needy to them to know that they who the needy were. But the real reason they were doing it is so that people could see them and go, look how generous they are. And Jesus Christ says, when you do that, you've already received your reward. It wasn't toil for them. It was what they wanted to do in order to receive the reward that they wanted, the applause of men. But real labor, real labor for the kingdom means that 
there's real suffering, that it really has a cost. When Paul goes and labors for the kingdom, he got stoned, he got thrown in prison, he got shipwrecked. He doesn't go, it's supposed to be easy, it's supposed to be comfortable, it's supposed to just fit into my life. That's not, that's not what salvation is like. That's not what the works that we're supposed to do. If God is just, and he is, the, and he is just, and he will render to each one according to his deeds, to those who are self-seeking, who those who are just doing the things that they want to do, just doing the things that make them comfortable, guess what? That's about them. That's not about God. And God says the ones he rewards are the ones who are doing it for him, are doing it about immortality, are doing it for his honor, for his glory. Real service, being a living sacrifice, means that you do things that you don't want to do. And they did it out of love. You know? I listed things that accompany salvation. That was far from a complete list. Humility accompanies salvation. The humble will inherit the earth. And one thing that accompanies salvation is love. We love God because he loved us. We love our neighbor because he loved us. We love the church because the church is the bride of Christ. You can't love Christ without loving his people. You can't love Christ without caring about the church of Jesus Christ. One of the most basic things that accompanies salvation is love. That's how we're to be known. The Jews were known by their circumcision. Christians are known by their love for one another. This is one of the most basic things that accompany salvation is that we love the brethren. So the writer says, we've seen that. We know that. You have the works of love. You have the sacrifice. You made the sacrifices necessary to love your brethren. There was a real cost, and you bore that cost. And don't think God's going to forget that. Don't think God will be unjust towards that. The things that you've shown towards the saints, the work, the labor of love that you've shown towards his name, because you care for the brethren. That's a demonstration of their being right with God. The work and toil that they did to be a blessing. It wasn't for themselves to be puffed up. It was done so that others would see their good work and glorify their Father in heaven. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So much of the church is about seeking people. That's the whole seeker-sensitive movement. It's all about man. It's all about seeking man. And the writer of Hebrews is going, no, no, no. I understand why you can have assurance that God will bless you for your work and your labor. It was because it was for the name of God. The church is supposed to be making sure that God, the greatness of God's name is known. Not the greatness of Reformation Baptist Church or the greatness of fill in the blank. We're all supposed to be about the greatness of God. The whole earth is to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're supposed to be about. That's how we're supposed to conquer the kingdom of God. That's what we're supposed to be doing. 
And the writer of Hebrews saying, and I've seen this in your church. I know God will be just to reward you for these things. That you have ministered. Deaconia. Deaconia is different than doulos. Doulos is to be a slave where you're forced to do it. Deaconia, where we get, I mean, that's the verb form of the word deacon or the noun that we get deacon from. They, they did the work not because there was some force for them to do the work. They didn't do it as a slave. It was they humbled themselves. They attended to the needs for others. They saw the sacrifices that they needed to make, and they willingly chose to make it. That's what it means to minister. It means that they willingly attended to the needs of others specifically to the needs of the saints. And again, the saints here doesn't mean that they had to sit back and figure out who was saved and who wasn't saved. The saints are those who have been sanctified, those who have have their sins constrained, hopefully by the work of the Holy Spirit in them, but it's not for other people to judge. It's not until the sin manifests itself. That's not our responsibility. We're supposed to minister to those whose sin is constrained because it's a testimony of the power of God. And it's the point was that they were ministering, they were working to be a blessing to those who appeared to have fruit in their life about honoring God. And so they had to know what it looked like to, to walk in righteousness. Because we're, we need to know what it looks like to walk in righteousness so that we can help those who appear to have a desire to walk in righteousness, to have those things that accompany salvation. Because that's what the saints are. We can't see the heart, but we can see that they do. We can't know whether God has truly saved them or not, whether they've been regenerated. Think of the parable of the ten virgins. Five had the Holy Spirit and five didn't. That's not our job, but our job is to help the ministry of God, help the name of Christ be magnified by caring for the saints and ministering to the saints. Not only have they ministered, they do minister. This wasn't a one-time thing. This is to be the pattern of our life. Do Do you minister to the church? Do you care for those who are trying to bring honor to the name of Christ? As with all things that accompany salvation, it's not about what I did in the past. The the seed that's on the shallow soil, it springs up and it looks like a path. It looks like a healthy plant. And then the sun comes out and burns it up. No, it's it's not the things that I remember back when I was first saved that I did such and such. That's not the point. The point is they were actively ministering then. They do minister. What the scripture always tells us to do is look and say, what are we doing? What am I doing now? Where do I stand with God now? If God has given you the gift of faith, if you've been born again, you can look now and see how it's affecting your life. You don't need to look back. They could, he can look now and say, I see that you're still ministering. You're still working. You're still toiling out of love, love for the name of God. Hebrews 11 and 12. Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, the writer's using the first person plural, we desire. He's expressing the means, the intents of the group, the desire of the group that he's writing on behalf of. 
which again, it's likely it includes Paul, and he's been rebuking them, not out of disappointment in them, but because he desires something better for them. As long as they still stay on milk, they'll be weak. They'll be unable to do the things that they're supposed to do. So he's saying, get on the solid meat of the word so that you can go out and do the things that you should do. Then he says that each one of you, he can look at the church and see the works of the church testify to there being real faith in that church. That doesn't mean everybody in the church was saved. It doesn't mean that everybody there was, was faithful in doing it. So he switches from saying, I see your good works. I know that God's going to bless you for this. I know that God's going to judge you, and he's going to judge you righteous for this. But then he says, but each one of you, make sure that you're participating in that work. No one should think they're right with God because of the work of the church. What accompanies salvation is individual. Each one needs to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Each one needs to to see the effects of them having been justified by God. Each of us needs to show the same diligence. Each of us needs to not just say, well, there's people in the church working, so I'm participating in that. We each need to actually participate in it. We need to each, each one of you needs to show the same diligence. We're supposed to look at the example of one another and use it as an example to stir us up to greater works, greater service towards God. Each one of us needs to show diligence. And that word translated diligence, when we hear diligence, a lot of us think that means perseverance. But here the word is spude, which is the word we get speed from. You know, this is, this is, you need to be diligent like when you tell your son take out the trash and he waits an hour before he takes out the trash. That's not him being diligent. That's the diligence being talked here is that he sees the trash can being full and he goes and takes it out without being told. Right? That's the diligence that's being talked about here. Not that you keep doing it. Not that you do it an hour late every time. But that when you see the work that you're supposed to do, you go do the work. That's the diligence. That's what the word means here. Everyone needs to show the same diligence. Everyone needs to be quick to do the work of God. Everyone needs to be quick when they see the opportunity to serve God, to be quick to go and do it. Everybody knows how this works. When you don't want to do something, you go slowly. You just kind of come up with other reasons why not to do it. You put it off. And the writer of Hebrews is saying... That's not what faith looks like. What faith looks like is you see what you're supposed to do and you go and do it then. You don't say, how long can I put it off before I have to do this thing? The idea here is that each one needs to make sure that they show the same desire, the same diligence to do things with dispatch to do things where they see it and they're eager to do it. They're looking for opportunities to serve. That's what that diligence means. Not just that you're just sitting back and going, well, if somebody forces me to do it, I'll do it. Instead, that you'll go forward and you'll do it. It's not just perseverance. The point here is much more being quick to do the things, quick with a desire to serve God. That same diligence gives the full assurance of hope. 
having the eagerness to put aside our earthly desire is the testimony that our hope is in heaven and not on this earth. When we want the things that accompany salvation to be present in our lives, we're, we're, we're going to be zealous to do those things, and that's where we have full assurance of hope. You know, the, the writer of Hebrews very clearly ties faith to hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith and hope <coughs> are inseparable. When we exercise our faith by doing the things that God commands us to do, when we exercise our faith by seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that's how we come to have full assurance of hope. Exercising our faith results in hope. It's how that we can have full confidence, that we can have full full <coughs> understanding that we're right with God. Works do not save. And no one can rest their salvation on their works because God is very clear. He is the one that does the work. But works are what salvation produces. And so the more works that we do, the more our faith is made manifest through our work. Our faith becomes visible. And I don't mean just visible to other people. It becomes visible to us. That's how we can see that we have faith, is by the things that we do, by the things that that faith causes us, the steps it causes us to take. We don't go, we have faith because we were baptized. We were faith because we prayed a prayer. We have faith because we go to church. No, we have faith because we do the good works, the work and toil that God commands us to do. That's how we can see our faith. The same way that the writer could see the faith of the church by their works, every individual can see their own faith by their works. Faith without works is dead. If you can't see your works as a work of faith, it means you don't have faith. Because faith without works is dead. We can't see our own heart. It's very easy to be deceived by our own heart. It's very easy to be deceived by our emotions, be able to be deceived by our thoughts. But what we actually do, that's to be the basis of our assurance. Not that that's why Jesus saves, but when he saves, that's what he does. He gives us good works to do. If you don't have the desire to serve the Lord, you don't think he's your Lord. If you don't desire to, to be zealous to go about to do the work of God, why do you think that you actually want him to be your Lord? The diligence, the eagerness, the speed at which we do things, it's what gives us assurance that we know Jesus Christ as our Lord, that he is our hope. Because we're eager to do the things that he wants us to do. <coughs> the more you pour yourself out in his service, the harder it is to think that maybe he's not my Lord. If you're busy about treating him as your Lord, that will tell you and that will teach you and that will give you confidence that he is actually your Lord. And it's not just for a while, it's until the end. While the word translated diligence wasn't pointing towards perseverance, it was pointing towards speed. The writer still says until the end. He's saying it has to persevere. It's not like you, you spring up and you do some works and then you die off. There are plenty of people that do that. 
Do you have the speed to do the work until the end? Are you eager to do it, or do you get comfortable in the church and go, well, I'm in the church. I, I used to do things, but now I'm so busy, I just don't do anything anymore. That's not showing diligence to the end. We're not to stop doing good to those who are his servants. We're to, those who are his, his servants persevere because God causes them to persevere because his seed remains in them. Yes, our works change as our lives change. You know, a teenager who comes to faith, they have lots of time that they can do all kinds of stuff, and then they have five children, all of a sudden it's not the same. But that doesn't mean that they should still not have the desire to do the work, that they have an eagerness to do it. They have a zeal to do it when the opportunity comes to do it. You can test your own heart. Do you actually want to do the work of God, or do you use the busyness of life as an excuse not to? is your desire to serve God. (coughs) And he warns them, be diligent until the end so that you do not become sluggish. And I've seen this happen so often in the church. And sometimes that development of sluggishness takes 10 years. Sometimes it takes two months. But it happens a lot. People start out with zeal, and then they become sluggish. It's the opposite of them being speedy. It's the opposite of them being diligent. All of a sudden they go, oh, it's just too hard to do that. I'm not going to do that. Oh, that's just too much work. Yeah, I used to go to prayer Wednesday night, but I'm just too busy now. And they just start adding things to it, and they just become sluggish about doing good. That's, that's not a good thing. That's a sign that you don't really have salvation. Because when you mature, think of a child, when they mature, they keep doing more and more. They don't do less and less. And that's what we're supposed to be like, that we keep doing more and more. We don't do less and less. It's very easy. This is the same word that was used in chapter 5, where it says that they became dull of hearing. They became dull of hearing that they just didn't want to listen to the word anymore but we can become equally dull in our works where we just don't want to do the work anymore. And yeah, we kind of do it. Just like they continued to hear the word, but they said, well, let's narrow it down. Let's talk about just the five foundational things in the faith. We don't want to hear anything else. And that's what work can be like. Yeah, I'll go to church, but I don't want to do anything else. Yeah, I'll go to prayer, but I don't want to do anything else. I'm too busy. I've got too many other responsibilities. Instead of actually having a zeal to do the work of God. So we can become dull in our works, just like we can become dull in our hearing. So the writer's saying, make sure that you maintain diligence. Make sure you maintain zeal and, and be about the work of God speedily, because this is how you have full assurance of hope. So don't become sluggish. Imitate those. Instead, we're supposed to look to examples. The examples that are hard to follow, those are the example of those who sacrificed all for their faith. There's a reason why Paul's in the Bible. Think about what Paul did. Think about how he got stoned and left for dead. And he goes back into that same city to exhort the brethren. That's, that's diligence. That's speedy until the end. That, that, I mean, I'm not sure how you exceed that. And God's good enough to have a murderer of Christians be the one that does that so nobody can go, oh, look, it's the work of Paul. It's not the work of Paul. 
Paul was a murderer of Christians until Christ came and changed him. And then look at his zeal for good works. God gives us these examples. He gives us these people so that we can look at them and say, this is what it looks like to trust in God. And the Holy Spirit that Paul had is the same Holy Spirit that every believer has. So nobody can sit back and go, well, that was Paul. Nobody can sit back and say, but that was Paul. The writer of Hebrews says, imitate those who you see faithfulness in. (coughs) Those who trusted in God so they stood in the battle while others gave up. When he was at Ephesus, everybody abandoned Paul. And we're supposed to look at that and remember that and say, that's who we're supposed to imitate. (coughs) Those who went and poured out their lives. There's many missionaries that we can look back to. You know, as we go to Nigeria, the first three people that went to Plateau State, I think they all died within like four or five years of malaria. But from that, you know, yes, the church isn't that healthy, but there's a, a reformed church in Joss that has 15 million members because those three men went there and were willing to die to reach that group of people. Those are the people that that showed diligence. And they did it to the end. Their end wasn't that far off. But they did it to the end so that people could look at them and God has set up these examples. And you know, Hebrews 11 is going to be a list of examples from the Old Testament. It gives us all those examples of people in the Old Testament that were faithful when virtually everyone around them was not. He gives us those examples so that we imitate them. He's given us examples through the history of the church so that we can imitate them. Those that who through faith and patience, those who exercise their faith, that continued to exercise it, that continued to be diligent to the end, that did not become sluggish in their work. You know that they were diligent to do those things that were expressions of their faith. Like Paul, when he goes into prison, who would have thought that he'd be released because he's singing psalms in prison? But instead, the Philippian jailer comes to faith with his family. Or Stephen. Think of the impact Stephen had as he cries out to God to forgive people who are stoning him. This is what it looks like. This is people who exercise their faith to the end. As Stephen's dying, he's crying out to the people. Or as I said before, Paul, he gets stoned and left for dead and he goes back in to encourage the brethren. That's being diligent to the end. That's, we're supposed to imitate those who through their faith and patience inherit the promises, their faith and patience where everybody goes, that's a man who was clearly saved. Nobody goes, was Stephen saved? Nobody goes, was Paul saved? Nobody goes and looks at these people and says, were they saved? They go, I saw their faith. I saw their perseverance. And that's who we're supposed to imitate. And we're not supposed to go. But those are special people. Because then we've made it about the power of man. It's the power of God. And they have the same Holy Spirit that we have.
And so we shouldn't go, but that was them because it wasn't them. It was God. So we're supposed to be diligent and patient in working out our faith. And then he gives another example, Hebrews 6, 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now this passage talks about God swearing by himself and the nature of both. So I'm not going to talk about this this morning. Jonathan will cover that in next week's sermon, if the Lord wills. But I wanted to tie this to the previous verses. Because he's been saying, imitate those who went before, who through faith and patience inherited the promises. And so he's using Abraham as an example. You know, God had made promises before, but when... When God made a promise to Abraham, and the promise to Abraham is that the Messiah would come from him. The first promise was even before he left Haran in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the first promise made to Abraham. And then he reiterates the promise years later. When Abraham is, is about 85 years old, after he gives the offering to Melchizedek, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted to him for righteousness. So that's when Abram comes to faith. That's when he believes. That's when God says, you're saved. He believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. After he had given to Melchizedek, after he had left all these other things, after he had done all these things, he had received a promise, but he doesn't believe it until now. He doesn't have the belief in that promises. But again, Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86 years old, so he was probably 85 or younger when this happens when he receives this promise. And so then God says, and again, he says, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. But putting that aside, he then refers the promise here, the one that's quoted is from Genesis 22. So after Abraham raised up his son to kill Isaac, the son who God had promised would be the heir, the one who God promised that, that through him 
all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply. Your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemy. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Isaac was probably about 20 when this happened. He could have been a few years old earlier, could have been a few years later. But this is roughly 35 years after Abraham received the promise that he believed, that it was accounted to him by faith. He received the promise that in Isaac all the nations of the earth would be saved. But then God tells him to kill Isaac. And as he raises his hand to kill Isaac, as he raises his hand to, to slaughter him as a sacrifice to God, trusting that God will fulfill his promise, that through Isaac, through Isaac the Messiah will come. And then he receives the promise because the ram shows up and God says, don't kill him. And so those 35 years are the testimony of Abraham persevering, the testimony of Abraham obeying, the testimony of Abraham, even though we do find that he certainly has faults. But it's the testimony that that Abraham had faith and he persevered. And because of his faith, he received the promise. (coughs) Because you have obeyed my voice, The first time it was because you believe the promise and it was accounted to you for righteousness. The first one was about faith. The second one is about obedience because that's what faith produces. So the first one is the example of that we're supposed to have faith like Abraham that the New Testament talks about multiple times. And then it's after 35 years, Abraham was still obeying, which is why you know he'll receive the promise why the promise was reiterated to to him. Surely blessing I will bless you. He received the promise many years before, promises that, that we know Abraham understood because he understood it was not about the land of Canaan, which is what it says in Hebrews 11. And multiplying I will multiply you. His seed was going to bless all the nations of the earth, not just the one that came from his loins, but all the nations of the earth. And so... Abraham is the example of somebody who persevered in their faith because they believed and they obeyed. You could see Abraham's faith by his works. And so at this point, the author wants to make sure we understand after he had patiently endured for 35 years through much turmoil and strife, through famines, He patiently endured through the whole conflict with Ishmael. He patiently endured, definitely not perfectly, but he patiently endured and he trusted in God and he obeyed God. And so he obtained the promise. He saw that, yes, Isaac will survive to have offspring. And this is the picture that we're to imitate, not Abraham's sin, but we're supposed to imitate the willingness to sacrifice anything for God. 
the willingness that when we feel convicted that we should do something, you get up and you go do it, you go climb to the top of the mountain. That's how you can have assurance that you'll receive the promise. Receiving the promise is connected to Abraham being willing to do the work, the work of even sacrificing his own son. None of us are called to do that extreme of a work. None of us are called, I don't think, to do the same work that Paul did. But we're called to do the work that we're called to do. Are you speedy about doing it? Are you diligent about doing it? Are you working to do it to the end? Are you growing weary and doing good, or do you do it if you want to obtain the promises, if you want to obtain that assurance of faith, the assurance of hope, this is the way it comes. Don't trust in the words that you spoke. Don't trust in the thoughts that you had. Don't trust in the emotion you had. Trust in the work that you see God doing in your life, the things that it produces. That's how we can have assurance of the hope. <coughs> Let me give you some applications. <coughs> the first is God is not unjust. He's not unjust in how he saves. If he didn't break the power of sin, if he didn't sanctify and cleanse, then he is unjust in his salvation. And that's really important because so many people in the church don't believe this. He doesn't just say, I'm going to close my eyes to sin. That is not what he says about his children. He doesn't go, I don't care what they do. They're my children. I'll forgive them regardless. God is just. And so what he does is he goes, I will change my children so that I can judge their works because he will render to each one according to their deeds. He will change their works so that the judgment is just. He does not become unjust so that he can... You know, we, we see this in our country all the time, right? The people who are connected, the people who have... You know, you look at even the, the scandal with Hunter Biden and stuff. How did he get away with it? He got away with it because of the connections that he had. And that's what the church wants to teach. Well, we get away with our sin because of the connections that we have with God. The church wants to teach that God is unjust, and he is not unjust. What he does is he changes us so that we're a different creature, so he can judge us as being righteous because he produced righteousness in us. God is not unjust. When people think that there aren't things that accompany salvation, inherent to that is to make God unjust. And he is not unjust. And he's not unloving. If you're not, people want to just say, well, yeah, you're saved, so he ignores your sin. So he pretends like he's blind. He pretends like he's deaf. Those are idols that are like that. God is not deaf. God is not blind. God is not dim in his understanding. He is perfect in his understanding. If you ignore evil, the Bible is very clear. That is sin. That is evil. That is hating your neighbor. If you let their sin abide on them, Leviticus 19. That's not God. He doesn't just ignore sin. 
Instead, he takes sinners and he changes them so that they walk in obedience. Not perfect obedience, but he changes them so that their lifestyle is a lifestyle of obedience rather than a lifestyle of rebellion. (coughs) God is not unjust in his salvation. Second application, do we love at a real cost to ourselves? We live in a very rich society. We live in a very comfortable society, right? We live in a society like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, abundance of idleness and fullness of bread. That's where we are. And so it's easy for us to do little insignificant things and go, look at all I'm doing. That's not toiling for the the kingdom. That's That's not loving the way that we're commanded to love. It's easy to pretend to show love by giving to the church, by helping a poor person on the street. But if it really doesn't ever cost us anything, if there's nothing significant to us, we shouldn't think that we should have much assurance of salvation from that, that that's a testimony of our faith. To give something that doesn't really cost you anything doesn't mean much. Remember when the plague's going through, through, uh, (coughs) excuse me, when the plague's going through Israel because David did the census and Ornan says, take my, Take my place, take my, take my, all the tools, take my ox and everything. Go ahead and just sacrifice it all, anything to stop this plague. And David goes, I can't do a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Christians aren't supposed to do sacrifices that cost them nothing. That's not the sacrifices that are acceptable to God. We're supposed to toil. It's supposed to, to be a living sacrifice means we do things that we don't want to do. We do things that are painful to do, the things that we wouldn't choose to do. And this doesn't mean that you just go and work for the sake of working or cause, uh, cause yourself pain for the sake of, of pain, but the point is there's a kingdom to conquer that God has told us we're supposed to conquer. We're supposed to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There's plenty of work to do that causes real toil and real difficulties and real pain, And the church is supposed to be about those things. We're not supposed to be comfortable in this world or we're just making this world the center of our existence. We're supposed to be willing to sacrifice our comforts in this world to bring glory and honor to the name of Christ. That's what what we should expect to see in us because that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. It's one of the things that accompanies salvation. It was a willingness to sacrifice for others. So related to that is, have you become sluggish? And again, it's an important question. Sometimes it can appear that we have become sluggish because we're doing things that, or we're not doing things that we used to do, but it could be just because we have greater responsibility. So the measure of sluggishness is not that you're stopping doing some things. The measure of sluggishness is, are you quick to choose to do the right thing? Are you quick to choose to do the thing that... It, that is obedience to God, the the exercising of your gifts, the exercising of the things that God has given you. The measure of being sluggish is not to say, I used to spend hours witnessing to the lost, and now I don't have time to do that because I'm married and I have children. The question is, are you zealous? Are you quick to do the things that you can do? Are you speedy to do them? When you have time, how do you use it? Do you use it to feed your flesh or to serve the saints? 
Are you quick to exploit opportunities when you see them, or do you hesitate? Because let's be serious, we all know how this can work. You can say, oh, I should really witness to that person, and then you go, should I or should I not? Should I? And then the person walks away, and you go, I guess I shouldn't have. That's what sluggish is. That's what it looks like. It's just you hesitate until the opportunity isn't there anymore. It's easy to be sluggish and deceive ourselves and say, I just didn't, I just didn't see the opportunity. I didn't act fast enough. I didn't, I didn't do it. I was too busy. But make sure you don't deceive yourself. Are you sluggish? Have you become sluggish in doing the work of God? You know, there's always reasons why not to do things. And you can always look and figure out ways not to, reasons not to do things. But be honest with yourself. Are you looking for reasons not to do things? Are you looking for ways to do things? Christians are supposed to be looking for ways to do things for the kingdom of God, for the glory of Christ. And both of those, you know, the <coughs> other people can't judge. Other people that aren't in your head can't see that you're just hesitating versus that you really couldn't do it then. But make sure you know. Make sure you examine yourself. Are you being sluggish? (coughs) Another application. (coughs) Don't look to the works of the church for your assurance. (coughs) It's easy to do this. I hear the children say things like, you know, we're doing this as the church, even though they're unbelievers. They want to take credit for the church, what the church does. The writer of Hebrews goes, no, each one of you has to be diligent. It can't just be, as a church, we do these great things. Each one of you needs to be diligent. Anybody who's saved should be able to see God's work in them that produces a speed to go about and do the things that they should be doing. Faith manifests itself in what you're doing, so be diligent to be about those good works. That's how we keep the hope in front of us. That's how we make it not about this world, is by seeking to do things that are about the the world to come, that are about the kingdom of God. When we ignore the work that God has given us to do, the difficulties in this life, they become first and foremost, and we can really easily lose hope But when we're focused on what we should be focused on, serving the Lord of all, that's the source of hope, that he's changed us, that he did it, that he's the end. We're not the end-all, be-all. When we think we're the end-all, be-all, that is the most hopeless place to be. Because who are you? You don't matter. The only reason you matter is because of the glory of God. And because God says you matter, that you are a vessel for him. That's why anybody matters. And when we make it about ourselves, we forget who God is and we lose hope. (coughs) We're supposed to look, another application, we're to look at the example of the faithful. Of those men and women who do the work of the Lord not to exalt them, not to ignore their faults, not to be idolatrous about them, which there's plenty of books about Christian missionaries that are about idolatry. Not about those things. But that we look at them and we can say, 
I have the same Holy Spirit that they have. So I can do the works with the same diligence and zeal that they do. And I can look at Paul and say, I should be able to do the same thing because the spirit that enabled Paul to do it is the same spirit that I have. We look at them and we go, I should imitate them. You know, in Hebrews 11, it goes through all these men and women of God from the Old Testament. They did all these works. They conquered kingdoms. They faced lions. They, they did all these, these things. And we're supposed to look at them and go, and God has poured out the Holy Spirit in a greater way in the New Covenant. If they could do all those things, how much more should every Christian be able to do? That's what we're supposed to look at that and say. Not, oh, look at them. They're just spectacular people that God raised up. No, he poured out his spirit. If they could conquer a kingdom, how much further should the church be able, what more should the church be able to do with the spirit of God? When we read David's mighty man, and we read about how they slew 500, and we read about Samson, and we read about all these people, we're supposed to turn around and say, and we will do greater works than them. God gives us these examples so that we remember we have more than they had. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of victory. <coughs> if they could be victorious without the same Holy Spirit that we've been given, poured out the same way, not a different spirit, but poured out a different way, how much more should we be able to do? And then the last application. Persevere in your diligence, Galatians 6, 9 and 10, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap, if we faint not. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. Persevere. Persevere into the end. Persevere in doing good. Persevere in being a blessing to others. Persevere in caring for those who Christ died for. Be fast to do the work of the Lord. To do the service of the Lord. Whenever you have the opportunity, desire to see the work of God manifested in your life by your works. That's how you know that you know him, is that the God, the love of God produces love in you towards God, and this is the love of God to obey his commandments. So you go obey his commandments, and you see the obedience to his commandments, and this is how you know that God loves you. By not growing weary, but by building our assurance of hope, by persevering to the end. That's how we know that God loves us. Let me pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you. (coughs) We thank you that you do put visible things, things that we can see in this world because we can deceive ourselves, we can lie to ourselves, we can mislead ourselves. But you put physical things in this world so that we can check our faith. We can check if our faith is producing works that are about your glory and about the greatness of your name. Lord, we pray as we, (coughs) as each of us, thinks about the gifts that you've given us, the abilities, the, the, the various things that you've done in our lives and the positions that you have placed us. 
Lord, I pray that you make each one of us, not collect just collectively, but each one of us be diligent to take where we are, take the opportunities that you give us, take the resources that you give us, and let us be willing to do the work and let us toil. Let us be willing to suffer the pain, to see the greatness of your name acknowledged in our society, to see the greatness of your name acknowledged in the church, to see the greatness of your name acknowledged in our families. Let us desire to see how great you are rather than to think that we're great. Lord, make us a people who persevere to the end, persevere in declaring your greatness and your goodness by obeying you and by walking in your commandments for your name's sake. We thank you that you give us the spirit to do this, for even as we think of the disciples and all the their confusion and all their disobedience and all their their pride, and then you give them their sp- your spirit and they all change. We thank you that you continue to change us, make us more like your son. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. <laughs>